Christian, how's your hot apple cider? It's very delicious and I feel very fancy while drinking it. That's great. This is a good beverage for what we're going to talk about today. So listener, you can pour yourself a, a cup of uh, hot apple cider and we're going to talk about how Russian hackers took down the Ukrainian grid. That's coming up on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. My name is Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode, and I'm joined today by two CyberScoop reporters, AJ Vicenz and Christian Vasquez. Welcome to the show, boys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me in person. It's great to have you in person, AJ. It's Mm -hmm. lovely. All right, Christian. So we have recently found out that Russian hackers have succeeded in taking down the Ukrainian grid. Uh, Tell us what happened. Uh, Yeah, so in uh, late 2022, in October, uh, Mandiant responded to an incident where um, Sandworm, the notorious Russian hackers um, from the GRU uh, unit out of Russia, um, basically took down for less than a day a substation um, in Ukraine and subsequently used a wiper attack um the the wiper called caddy caddy wiper two days later to try to erase their traces and they were able to successfully do this for the first time since i think the 2017 uh cyber attack against ukraine's grid in the middle of winter again um so this is quite a significant event that this has happened they've been trying to do this for a while and it looks like they actually succeeded this time so aj you've been covering sandworm for a long time kind of step back tell us who are these guys and what's the significance of the fact that they've succeeded in hitting the Ukrainian grid? So Sandworm is the name for a hacking unit or group or operation operated out of the Russian military intelligence sort of sector. And really they're one of among the most effective and enduring Russian government hacking operations. I mean, they, uh, as Christian said, have taken down the grid in Ukraine before. Um, and they've also been linked to other things like NotPetya, the cyber attack that targeted, I believe it was accounting software in Ukraine uh, that spilled across the world, ended up costing $10 billion in damages. They attacked the 2018 Olympics in South Korea. They are just really good at doing what they're supposed to do, which is wrecking stuff. Um, in the context of the current war, they've deployed a bunch of wipers. Um, they destroy data, but they're also an espionage unit. They steal data, they destroy systems and that sort of thing. So if what Mandian is reporting is true, that they were managed to take down at least temporarily a, a power substation or whatever it was, that represents sort of a a win for them that should be troubling for people, you know, around the world. So Christian, walk us through how they do it. Um, yeah, it was actually, it's kind of unique. This is like a, uh, it's not completely new, but this is the first time that this 
kind of attack has happened on ICS that uses purely living off the land techniques. And that essentially means that the hackers only use tools that are already present on the operational technology of the substation. So basically that means they got into the IT. Um, it, it looks like they were there for a couple of months. The initial intrusion was probably around June is what Mandiant suspects. They don't know for sure. It could have been earlier. Um, and that was likely through the IT side, probably phishing or something like that, but they don't actually know. Um, and after that, um, they made it into the OT side. And once they were there, um, they basically just used pure knowledge and skill. I mean, this is kind of to what AJ was talking about. This was like a really technically impressive hack. Um, they were able to actually shut down the substation and using these kinds of uh, methods where they're just using what they know about that network, that substation, these breakers, they turned off some breakers and, you know, had that impact to where it actually turned it off. And then after that, they issued the caddy wiper to try to erase their tracks. But interestingly enough, they only did that on the IT side and they did not do that same wiper on the OT side. So there might have been some lack of communication between different, you know, offices or whatever. I'm um, not exactly sure, but, you know, that, that that was an interesting point as well. So are these guys, they've infiltrated the technical system that's used to control power distribution via the substation and are literally throwing breakers and are using that, like using their control of the technical system to throw breakers and disrupt power in that way? Yeah, they, they made through a, a particular type of uh, device called MicroSCADA, which, you know, helps um, the, the workers there kind of be able to do their job, essentially. Um, and th they just used their pure skill to do that. They just knew which which commands to run at which time to have the effect that they wanted to do. And they used the the commands that are already present on, on that device as well. So they didn't, they didn't have to create malware. They didn't have to create any kind of new thing like Triton, a really, really big um, kind of destructive malware back in also 2017. Um, this was just, they just knew which buttons to press and when essentially. Hmm. I was going to add, if we zoom out a little bit, the fact that they were able to do this while you know essentially the eyes of the world are on mm -hmm. the ukrainian cyber ecosystem i mean you have a flood of resources from the u.s government uh, the british government nato um not to mention the flurry of sort of private companies in there supporting ukrainians working with them uh sort of seeing the latest attacks as they happen thwarting them in some cases you know sandworm was thwarted in an attack on the Ukrainian grid in April of 2022. So, you know, this is the fact that they were still uh, amid that whole context able to do this. Um, and really sort of speaks to the level of, you know, adversary that's we're dealing with there. What's kind of the relationship between this attack and the kinetic attacks that the Russians are carrying out on a day-to-day -day basis in Russia? like? Is there any evidence, for example, that this attack on a piece of critical infrastructure is being coordinated with, you know, ordinary missile attacks on other pieces of Ukrainian critical infrastructure? The, the Mandiant researchers are um, careful to say that they don't have clear evidence that this there was a, an operational link or connection between the attack on the electrical infrastructure and subsequent sort of overlapping missile attacks. 
And so the short answer is we don't know whether there was one. And that's kind of been a bigger question throughout the war is to the extent, uh, the extent to which there are operational connections between cyber attacks and kinetic attacks. And, you know, some people have said that why would you need to cyber attack a facility, for instance, when you can just drop a bomb on it? Um, and I think that's a convincing argument personally, mm -hmm. but at the same time, maybe you want to soften a certain area up in a certain way or, or terrorize civilians by turning the lights out, or maybe you have other sort of prerogatives in mind rather than just physical destruction. So there are a lot of sort of open questions along those lines, but it's certainly mm -hmm. an area to pay attention to. Ukraine has gotten a lot of credit for the success that it's seen in repelling Russian cyber attacks. Do you guys think that this attack at all undermines that narrative around Ukrainian defensive success in cyberspace? I don't I don't really think so just because Sandworm is Sandworm, right? They have the resources, they have the they have the money, they have the capability, they have the the, the technology for sure. So I think eventually, you know, you're, you're going to have to assume you're going to get hit at some point. Um, I think it is, um, it, I would instead rather highlight that they've been under attack this entire time. And this is the only time that we've seen publicly, at least, that, that something has gone down since 2017. And I think that that really, you know, tells to their uh, defenses. But I, I will say a bit broader. I mean, there is nothing special about the device that they use, that, that Sandworm used to actually... Um, use this attack so that could be replicated across you know other other uh, other devices other industries other critical infrastructure sectors so i don't think this has anything to do with ukrainian defenses um not being up to par i just think it really just shows how complex and hard it is to defend operational technology on a day-to-day -day basis yeah, i mean one, one thing that this strikes me also is or one thing that strikes me about this is that this is a good example of how little we know about what's happening in the, the Ukrainian cyber landscape. This attack occurred more than a year ago, yeah. and we're just finding out about it now. And over the course of that time, you know, we've heard untold number of statements from Ukrainian and Western cybersecurity professionals about the defensive successes that they've had, which, to your point, Christian, I think are true. But at the same time, the Russians have also carried out an attack in which they've succeeded in turning out the lights, which that category of attack has, I think, turned into the, it's almost like the canonical cyber attack, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. if you succeed in turning out the lights, like, oh, all that's, right, gold star for you. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that, like, that's the one, right? Mm -hmm. And the Russians have now succeeded in doing it for what I think is the third time, right? Well, I, I think to your point, we've had experts tell us and in, in for other stories and on, on other attacks that there might be a bias of success based on the fact that what we see is what we see. We don't see what we're not seeing. And mm -hmm. that sounds like a very simple thing to say, but at the same time, there is a lot going on that will never see the light of day publicly. But even, you know, industry professionals that surface this information and share it to try to help other defenders do their jobs too, they're only seeing subsets of subsets of activity and only sometimes, you know, the attackers might mess up or someone, you know, makes a, a tiny mistake and, and something is caught. Um, these are the most you know, sort of resourced attackers there really are um, with the, mo as Christian said, with the motive, the means, the 
the the want to just get it done and you have to win every day against these guys it's gonna every once in a while you're gonna get get got as it were mm-hmm. we'll end with a shout out to donald rumsfeld we don't know what we don't know thanks for coming on the show boys Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Jocelyn Benson, Michigan's Secretary of State. She joins the show to discuss how she's trying to keep elections safe in the aftermath of Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, how to combat misinformation related to elections, and the threat AI poses to the political system. I'm joined today by Jocelyn Benson, Michigan's Secretary of State. As the chief administrator of Michigan elections, Secretary Benson is grappling with a new and troubling phenomenon in American public life, running elections for public office at a time when many voters believe they are illegitimate. Between claims from figures like Donald Trump that elections are rigged, legitimate cybersecurity risks affecting voting infrastructure, growing fears that AI will be used to create a wave of disinformation and violent intimidation of poll workers, the job of election administrators has arguably never been harder. Secretary Benson, welcome to Safe Mode. Thanks for having me. So when President Donald Trump falsely claimed in 2020 that the election had been rigged against him, Michigan was one of the states in which his allies tried and failed to find evidence of fraudulent voting. Some of those claims involved hacked voting machines, for example. And I'd like to begin by asking you how the running of elections in Michigan has changed since 2020 and how Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election has affected election administration. Well, thanks for having me. It's interesting because in many ways, and on paper, the way in which elections have changed in Michigan since 2020 is that they've become better, uh, meaning uh, voters amended our state constitution in 2022 to institute early voting. Uh, and a lot of the election subversion tactics that were used in 2020 not only failed, but led the way to reforms to make it more difficult to overturn elections in the future. Uh, That hasn't been all rosy, of course. The impact of the misinformation has been real for many of our voters with citizens, uh, particularly uh, those who are loyal followers of of Donald Trump becoming very rigid in believing the false claims and the unproven claims of of election malfeasance, uh, no matter how much evidence we have, and there is ample, and through hundreds of audits demonstrated that Donald Trump lost the presidential election, lost the election in Michigan. Uh, there are still um, individuals who refuse to to see those facts, and uh, now are entering the 2024 cycle still upset about what they believe falsely was a stolen election. From where you sit in Michigan, what does the landscape of election-related misinformation look like today? It's really rooted in questions of uh, uh, how to vote, where to vote, whether to believe once you vote, your vote counts, and whether to believe that the results of the election are accurate. And so we're very clear in sort of in a deeper level trying to provide clarity and confidence to voters through facts and evidence and transparent election procedures uh, that indeed our elections are secure, people can trust once they vote, their vote counts, and that the results of the election are an accurate reflection of the will of the people. And then we work with other 
sources of information and voices who are trusted in communities like faith leaders and sports heroes to similarly give them content that they can amplify to help us restore that trust. We know adversaries of democracy want to create chaos and confusion and sow seeds of doubt about our processes. And so we need to counter that with clarity and confidence and certainty about our processes through as many voices that are trusted as possible. Mm. So as Michigan Secretary of State, you had a front row seat to Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election, including his various claims that voting machines were hacked. I'm curious if Trump ends up as the Republican nominee, do you think that we're headed towards a replay of that scenario? We're certainly planning and anticipating for the same tactics that were used and failed to overturn elections in 2020 could be fa- could be attempted again, but perhaps in this way, this year in a much more sophisticated way. And I think that could play out regardless of who the nominee is, but certainly we, we need to be prepared for it to play out if uh, Donald Trump is the nominee. You describe what some of that planning looks like. What is that? Uh, a number of things. I mean, one, it means working with our clerks, doing tabletop exercises on on how to prepare for AI and other uh, emerging technologies that are new uh, and mitigate any harmful effects they could have on our processes. Uh, it means uh, working with colleagues in law enforcement uh, to um, be prepared to rapidly respond to anything that manifests itself at the polls, at polling places, or at counting stations. It means taking every election, as, and we've had several since 2020, as an opportunity to make clear uh, that there will be no tolerance for any types of attempts to interfere with our counting processes, which we've seen attempted in 2020. Uh, it means looking at all the tactics that were employed in 2020 and just being prepared for them all to be tried again and then working with our fellow battleground states in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona, many of whom um, are led by now election administrators who weren't in these positions in 2020 to help them prepare for these tactics and brainstorm others that could be used so that we are all locking arms and going into 24 as fully prepared as possible. In 2020, one of the remarkable Michigan-specific stories was the videos that spread very quickly around the convention center in Detroit Mm, mm -hmm. and videos of poll workers doing their job. Yeah. And then that getting misconstrued online and and very quickly going viral amid claims of election tampering. Those videos spread very quickly on social media platforms. I'm wondering what your relationship looks like with Mm. the big social media platforms today. There's been series of court rulings kind of pushing back on the government's ability to communicate with social media platforms regarding Mm -hmm. misinformation. What does that relationship look like for you today? Well, certainly find ways to coordinate and collaborate where possible is continues to be a priority, uh, whether it's with Meta or YouTube or Google, but also there's frayed relationships now with some of the more influential social media companies like X, formerly known as Twitter, where we used to have partnerships. They really just don't exist anymore. Uh, and similarly, TikTok and Telegram, other other uh, vehicles, uh, we we don't we aren't connected with. And so there are there are more opportunities for misinformation to spread. And for us, it all gets back to you know we can work at the top with governments with officials with tech companies, but our work needs to also focus on voters at the grassroots level because they, if we can empower them to reject misinformation with truthful information, then 
we can, and as consumers to only to not respond to misinformation, then that creates a disincentive, I believe, for a lot of tech companies to allow misinformation to prosper because voters are rejecting it and instead identifying truthful information and spreading that. Wondering if you might talk a little bit more about TikTok. Mm -hmm. Are you going to them and, and trying to establish a relationship and there's no point of contact? Are they not? We've had conversations, okay. um, especially in advance of the 2022 election cycle. Uh, it, it, there are, they, they vary in productivity and impact, okay. um, but we can have. Uh, and, and again, it all always gets back to me of just, if, you know, if we can, if folk, our most productive conversations have been with with voters, with young voters, with consumers on the other side of these tech industries who can, who are in some ways the most powerful um, forces at driving the content in a way that is truth-based as opposed to, you know, deceptive. Mm. One of the very concerning trends since 2020 has been the uh, violent threats made to poll workers and the mm -hmm. attempts to intimidate poll workers. You've had armed protesters show up to your house mm -hmm. and there are numerous examples of poll workers receiving violent threats, both online and in person. And many are leaving the profession as a result. Wondering first off, how are Michigan's poll workers doing first off? And mm -hmm. what do you see as kind of the current landscape with regards to threats being made towards poll workers? What are the impacts mm. that you're seeing from those threats? I think one of the impacts, and actually to me the most dominant impact I've seen, and also which sort of answers the question about how folks are doing, uh, is that yes, it is true that some have left the profession, um, but we have seen tens of thousands of new election workers sign up uh, through processes that we've created to increase um, access to the portal for signing up to be a poll worker. And as a result, election workers who are still doing the jobs are there because they know what it entails. They know what it's, it is at stake. And they're really proud to be on the front lines defending democracy. So there's actually an enormous energy and enormous pride and an, and an enormous resilience among election workers right now in Michigan that I've seen who are, who are aware of the threats that could come and are proud to stand up in response and in defiance of them. Mm. When it comes to those threats, you know, in the public imagination, threats to attacks on the voting system, I think often comes down to voting machines being mm -hmm. hacked, mm. which we've never really seen happen in the wild, but there have been numerous examples of researchers hacking into voting machines and the very real security vulnerabilities of these machines are mm -hmm. fueling perceptions, I think, that elections could be hacked, mm -hmm. even if they perhaps haven't. And I'm wondering, what's your sense of the current state of security in the voting machine industry? Are we seeing progress? Are things improving? Or are you still seeing a fair number of vulnerabilities when it comes to these key machines? Well, first, the growth of paper ballots, and now the vast majority of voters in, in the United States vote with paper ballots, mm -hmm. has been one of the most critical ways of ensuring that machines really are limited in what they can do to impact election results because you've got the paper ballot record. Remember, going into 2016, we had a lot of electronic voting machines, which were, in my view, far more problematic than any machine we have now. Machines since then have only gotten more and more secure. There are new security guidelines that go into effect next year for the federal government that we're also working to meet and ensure, uh, from a substantive standpoint, we are um, doing everything we can in a tangible way to increase machine security and stay ahead of emerging threats. Uh, but but 
the bottom line is paper ballots are critical in ensuring a secure election process. In Michigan, we have all paper ballots and in the vast majority of scenarios, and I'm sure soon 100% of voters in our country will be voting with paper ballots, which will always provide a paper record of a vote so that we can have an audit after the fact and identify any problems, writ large or small, that might have occurred with machines, but it really decreases the incentive of anyone to hack a voting machine because it's not going to work. Mm. And ultimately, the paper ballot record will rule the day. What's your sense of the current state of security measures of digital systems around the voting, broader voting infrastructure right now? What do you think kind of the maturity level is? Mm. I'm a hacker and I start to poke at your systems. Yeah. You feeling confident? Yeah. I, I mean, certainly we, I established an election security commission in our state so that we can get consistent advice from experts as to what we need to do to stay on top of all the emerging threats. We also work with our state government and the cybersecurity experts there through our Department of Technology to um, secure our, our all of our equipment at all times and educate local jurisdictions. We have 1,500 local jurisdictions that are on their own systems uh, as to what they, they can do to prevent against any type of malfeasance. Uh, all of that we're doing far more than ever before. We've migrated many local election websites to .gov type websites that are far more secure than what they might have had before. So the 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 arc of our work on election security despite the threats has only begun has only been about getting stronger and better and more alert and vigilant about um, the potential for those threats and that makes me very confident going into this election cycle that we're as ready as possible. Okay. We're speaking in Washington on Wednesday, November 8th. You've just attended a meeting organized by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This is one of his AI Insight Forums. The session was focused on AI threats to elections and democracy. You were one of a number of elected officials, but also security and policy experts in the room. I'm wondering what your takeaways were from that meeting. Well, I really tried to convey the the imminency of the moment that uh, we have solutions out there, including federal legislation that is bipartisan in nature that Senators Klobuchar and Hawley have produced uh, to help us be prepared with tools needed to protect our election systems against the the misuse and deceptive use of AI. Uh, and also tried to convey that, you know, democracy is a team sport. We need everyone from tech companies to uh, cybersecurity experts to uh, federal and state officials and local officials to be fully informed and doing everything we can to mitigate the negative impact of AI. Uh, and on the, on the flip side of that, noting that the goal of AI is to um, really deceive voters and um, demobilize them to get them to, to give up <clears throat> and, and not believe in democracy. And so we have to, as a community, in a bipartisan way, build voters' faith in, in democracy and, and work to in, ensure they don't give up and have access to trusted sources of information, even if AI tries to deceive them in the process. The AI threats to elections, they seem to be mostly theoretical, at least for now. And I'm curious what you think are compelling AI use cases for interfering in an election or trying to influence the outcome of an election. Like what do you what do you think could realistically happen at the intersection of yeah. AI and election? I mean I'm deeply concerned about election day misinformation that gets out through social media, false claims about violence at polling sites. 
uh, or other types of problems that could, among other things, lead to threats against election officials and deter people from coming up to, out to vote. If we look at all this through the lens of the goal of our adversaries is to get people to not vote, to get people to give up on democracy and not participate, or to hear so many lies that they don't know what the truth is anymore, then we have to look at election day as an opportunity for them to spread lies in a way that would cause people to stay home and not vote saying there's long lines at a polling place when really there's no line at all uh, is another way in which AI could uh, be generated to have an impact. We mitigate that impact by staying on top of that. In Michigan, we have a field team in place. And every point on election day, I, someone from my staff is within five minutes of a polling place. That means if we do hear about something happening, we'll go there right away, whether it's AI-generated imagery or just a a phone call with a threat, we'll go there and find out what's true and report that out uh, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Are there any kind of policy solutions or interventions that you look at with regards to AI that you know you, you want to see urgently in place? Well, the root of AI's problems with elections is its ability to exponentially exacerbate the impact of misinformation. And while that is kind of a new aspect of it, the solutions to combating misinformation are are old. Uh, they're the same that we've had for, for many election cycles, and they're rooted in educating voters, helping and empowering them to become critical consumers of information, and providing trusted sources of information to all citizens about our elections. Uh, if we can do that and really empower voters to reject um, you know, misinformation writ large, in particular through you know, AI-generated misinformation, then we um, minimize the negative impact AI or any other type of misinformation can have on our democracy. Are you thinking about any kind of more positive AI use cases for elections? Well, certainly, just as much as misinformation can be spread by AI, AI can be used to identify misinformation and help us reject it and help voters reject it. And so how can AI be our friend? How can it give, it, <laughs> give us trusted information? How can it help us identify and reject misinformation? And then another element is reaching marginalized communities and particularly language, uh, language uh, limited English proficiency communities. How can, um, how can AI be utilized to translate election materials in a quick way for folks or get them information in their native language that'll help them be more informed and engaged voters? So there's lots of opportunities to use AI as a civic engagement voter education tool and in that, it becomes its own antidote to the spread of mis to countering the spread of misinformation. Yeah, are you doing any of these things? How far along are we in kind of deploying AI for these more positive use cases? Like, what's the maturity of kind of Michigan state government and its? Yeah, well, AI interestingly, use? we in Michigan already have people in place to to produce and reproduce translated election materials, particularly in um, you know, large Arab American communities and the like. Uh, and so you know, we, may, we, we don't have to use AI to accomplish those goals, but we're open to perhaps even in future election cycles as the technology becomes more reliable and sophisticated, look into that use. Mm -hmm. um, obviously top of mind for all of us is, is protecting the system from the misuse of AI. Um, but but again, not without looking at some of the positive ways, either now or in the future, when the technology becomes more accepted and reliable, that it can be used to help educate voters in new ways. Mm. If you look out, I don't know, over the next, let's say, two election cycles, when it comes to the impact of AI on 
democracy and elections. What's your best case scenario and what's your worst case scenario? Well, the scenario is all rooted in are people participating in democracy? Do people have faith in our elections? Are they informed and educated citizens? So best case scenario is that AI helps us accomplish those goals. It gets people more reliable information. It helps us reach more people with with clear facts as to why their vote matters. Uh, worst case scenario is that you know the, the that AI is used by bad actors, in particular our foreign adversaries, uh, to disengage and deceive and demobilize our our voters uh, to the point where democracy diminishes um, on our watch. Um, and it's important to re- to remember that we all and ultimately voters have the power to decide which path we go down. And if we commit ourselves to becoming critical consumers of information and and not being fooled by AI deepfakes, for example, uh, then AI can be a true tool for good and 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 not a effective tool for for bad. Um, and you know it's going to be up to all of us to decide what path we want to go down in the months ahead. When it comes to foreign interference in the US election system, whether it's Russia, China or Iran, the three players that have been identified as kind of having the ability to try to reach U.S. voters, maybe have an impact on the election. What have you seen in terms of activity from those actors in the last, let's say, year or so? I think what we've seen is a greater incentive than ever before in modern history for those three actors to um, interfere with our elections, with, um, you know, you know, obviously the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and Russia's invasion in Ukraine is one of the best examples of the fact that the outcome of this year, 2024's presidential election will directly impact his domestic priorities. And for that reason alone, we should be deeply concerned that they will leave no stone unturned to try to interfere, intervene with our presidential election process and other elections writ large, particularly at the federal level. Um, and we have to be prepared for that. We have to be clear eyed about that. I'm deeply concerned about it because I think there's no level to which those foreign adversaries will, won't stoop uh, to try to um, intervene with the people's will. Um, but the bottom line is uh, the, the greatest antidote we have all, to all of that is already in our corner, and that's the, the American citizen and their commitment to democracy. So we need to continue to harness that and for citizens to believe that they and only they can work together uh, to fight the disinformation, to fight the efforts to create chaos and confusion, and instead have clarity and confidence that our elections work and our democracy is sound. Are you seeing any efforts by these actors, though, to try to reach out and influence elections? We just had an election yesterday in Michigan. For yeah, n- we haven't yet because the elections that we've had since 2020 are not ones that might fall on their radar. They've been, you know, state elections, local elections. Uh, we're always on guard and talking with CISA about it. We know there's a lot of chatter. What we've had seen ongoing is foreign source doxing and other types of ways in which um you know, foreign hosted websites could be spreading false information and misinformation. And certainly we've seen an influx of hateful rhetoric and threats against election officials and just the spread of false information through social media platforms that I suspect are rooted in international, um, you know, sources. Okay. Jocelyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.